Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you talk about having to just get creative and come up with strategies, no one trained us on how to convert a hotel into an isolation clinic, right? Like the kinds of things that have come up in the past year. I've had to lean on any creative juices that I had, and I think everyone certainly in the healthcare field has. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, first tell me whose voice we heard at the top of the show, and then I have a question about your susceptibility to the seasons. But first, who was that? I'm in suspense about this question, but just to keep our audience (laughs) not in suspense much longer about the voice, that was the voice of Anthony Fortenberry. He's the chief nursing officer at Callan Lord, an LGBTQ healthcare organization, which we'll learn an awful lot about during this episode. Awesome. So I want very much to know about Anthony and his work. But first, it is definitively spring here in Brooklyn now. Are you one of those people whose creativity changes with the seasons, Isaac? Well, I'm not sure anymore, actually, because, you know, pre-pandemic, I would have said, yeah, I get a little seasonally depressed. I need one of those lamps that you shine on your face (laughs) a little bit when the seasons get shorter. And when when that sadness creeps in, it's hard to be as creative and and as good at what I do. And I get angry at myself faster, all those Mm -hmm. things. But you know what? I've mostly been inside (laughs) in a small, dark room for the last 14 months. And so it all kind of feels the same. The nice thing about the better weather is I can take longer and longer walks with Chili and I get to run into friends on the street and I get some sun and I just feel more like a human again. But I want to be honest, sweater slash blazer weather is really what's best for my body shape. So I prefer (laughs) fall. Yeah, yeah, same, same, hard same. So Isaac, I am... Really curious why you wanted to speak with Anthony for working. Isn't this a show about writing books and recording albums? Most of the time, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, I love that. I love that we have a show where we're interviewing artists about the creative process. But, you know, after a year of doing working, I was just really interested in taking one episode and hearing from someone who has to creatively solve problems that aren't artistic in nature just to see what we discover by talking to him about his work. And it turns out there's actually a lot of things that that, uh, he has in common with artists, I feel like. Anthony, like you and me, Isaac, is based in New York. Does your conversation contain any references that non-New Yorkers might maybe use some help with? 
Uh, I'm not sure that there's specific ones exactly that, that people might struggle with, but I do think it is worth listeners knowing that New York City was the early epicenter of both the COVID pandemic and the AIDS crisis. And uh, Callan Lord played a very important role in, in providing service during both of those. And in both of those times, uh, the rest of the country kind of turned their back on the city. I mean, even some Democrats voted against relief bills that would have kept New York from having the crippling budget crisis that we're now about to be in. And so everyone has dealt with being slammed by the COVID pandemic mm-hmm. at this point. And AIDS, the AIDS crisis, of course, stretches all over the world and is still ongoing. But it's worth mm-hmm. saying that in, in both cases, the early city that was hit super duper hard was New York. Oh, and of course, I should say that we talk about the Javits Center in this interview. And for those of you who've never been to the Javits Center, it's kind of this, um, it's a convention center on the west side of Manhattan that has like big cursed energy. Uh, <laughs> Hillary Clinton's, uh, what she thought was going to be her victory party was at the Javits Center. But even if you haven't just lost to Donald Trump, it's normally a very miserable place to be in. And But it's become one of the main vaccination sites and that has kind of turned the energy of the space around and it's actually... Uh, uh, almost pleasant to be in now. Now, I know you asked Anthony some questions that will only be heard by our Slate Plus listeners. Can you give us a sneak preview? Uh, yes. On Slate Plus this week, we talked about his cultural habits and what Anthony Fortenberry does when he needs to feel creatively refreshed. Oh, my God. I really need to hear that. Really, everybody does. But that kind of exclusive members only content is just one of the many benefits of Slate Plus membership. Others include zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only a dollar for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's hear Isaac's conversation with Anthony Fortenberry. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Anthony Fortenberry, thank you so much for joining us today on Working. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So let's just start with the real basics. What do you do? What's your job? I am the chief nursing officer at Callan Lord Community Health Center. Uh, Callan Lord is a community health center in New York City that primarily provides services that are targeted toward the LGBTQ community and people living with HIV. 
Yeah. So even before COVID, right, it's providing health care to those particular communities. Can you tell us a little bit about its background? Because it arose in this really interesting period of time between Stonewall and the HIV epidemic as part of this kind of like wave of service and political organizations, right? Yeah, it's actually, I think, a really wonderful story of how people in the community, uh, healthcare providers in the community, saw this unmet need for themselves and for their friends and loved ones, where there wasn't really a place where LGBTQ-identified people could get healthcare services in a judgment-free place by other queer people. Uh, and so there were two totally volunteer organizations, these were like providers, physicians, nurses, just volunteering their time. And this was almost 50 years ago. We had two completely different groups of these volunteers, uh, the Women's Health Collective and the St. Mark's Clinic, both providing LGBTQ-centric services um, that came together as the Community Health Project. And this really was, at its time, one of the first HIV-centric primary care clinics in the nation. Uh, and really was built and expanded as a direct response to the HIV epidemic happening in the city in the 80s. Uh, in the late 80s, we moved into what is now our largest health center on 18th Street in Chelsea, uh, where we still uh, are open to this day. And we've expanded to a smaller clinic in the South Bronx and a brand new health center in downtown Brooklyn. So before the COVID pandemic, what was a typical day of work like for you? So in my role, I oversee our nursing uh, case management, care coordination, um, quality programming, and our pharmacy. And so, you know, generally my role is about expanding those services to meet the needs of the community. We have, we're very fortunate in that we have a lot of grant funded programming. So we work really closely with the city and the state, uh, really trying to address the ongoing HIV epidemic in the state, and also sharing our practices with other smaller centers in places around the country that are also doing this work. And so we really believe in like not reinventing the wheel ourselves and sharing you know, our lessons learned with other places that are similarly struggling. You know, one of the major challenges of your job is, you know, the LGBTQ population has a statistically high incidence of medical discrimination and reluctance to seek care as a result of it. It's almost one in five, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, LGBTQ Americans have faced some form of discrimination that, that leads to some reluctance about pursuing care. That strikes me as, among many things, a creative challenge, right? So how do you handle that in your work and making sure that people actually get the care they need when they may be reluctant to ask for it in the first place? I could not agree more. It is the focus of our role. The reason why we exist is to tackle that problem specifically. Uh, and, you know, I think when you talk about primary care or preventative care, people are even more reluctant, right? You'll go to the ER if you really are in an emergent situation. But if you're just talking about like going in for a checkup, right? Why would you put yourself in a position where you might be discriminated against or where you feel like someone isn't going to respect your identity? Uh, and so what we have done, I think, is try to engage patients and people in the community to tell us what they feel they would like to see in the health center. Because there is no, you know, one size fits all model to this. And I think the more voices that you get in the room, and so I think you can 
creatively solve any kind of challenge that comes up in healthcare is bringing all the stakeholders to the table and having a conversation and saying, you know, what is it that you would like to see in the health center space? Um, I also think strategically we've hired staff that are of the community Mm -hmm. so that the people that are making these decisions are also, you know, creating a space that their best friend would come and get healthcare on. Right. What are some of the ways that you have changed as a result of those conversations with the community? Well, I think that we have certainly grown both in size because of feedback around access. You know, I think specifically as a result of the Affordable Care Act, so many more services were now covered by health plans, specifically Medicaid, that allowed people to, as a core example, access transgender healthcare services that had not previously been covered, right? And so although we've always been open, regardless of, you know, if you have insurance or not, this really enabled people to feel more empowered to say, you know, we need better access to gender affirming care. And so that's why we look to open Brooklyn. That's why like we've done these um, kind of community needs assessments where people give us very specific, you know, feedback on this is what we need you to be and this is how we need you to provide services. And so I think the organization has grown um, a, largely based on that feedback. And again, I think, you know, our staff are, you know, people that are part of the community. So we hear it from the staff too. And, and I think it's something that we we want to be right-sized. We want to grow to meet the needs of the community. And until there's more widespread LGBTQ-sensitive access in every healthcare setting, I think we're going to have to to need to continue to do that. You know, I have a feeling there's some percentage of our listeners at this point who are like, I thought this show interviewed novelists (laughs) and stuff. Uh, But one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on is because, you know, creativity isn't bound by a particular job, right? And it strikes me that your day-to-day life is filled with with all sorts of creative challenges. Is that that how you see it or am I totally wrong? Yes. Well, (laughs) you know, I feel like the last year of my life has been, you know, waking up to see like what random, like out of left field problem are we going to have to solve today? And when you talk about having to just get creative and come up with strategies that are totally outside of the box of our everyday, no one trained us on how to convert a hotel into an isolation clinic, right? Like the kinds of things that have come up in the past year um, have certainly, I've had to lean on any creative juices that I had. And I think everyone certainly in the healthcare field has. So let's go step by step, maybe through some of those creative challenges. So, you know, if we could whisk back in time to late February, early March, when things are starting to It's becoming clear how bad things are going to start getting and stuff like that. What are the challenges you were facing in March? What, what, and how did you face them? How did you figure out what to do? (laughs) It felt like a lot of the areas that were really important to get to ensure we maintained operational were like all my areas, right? Like triage at the front desk. We needed like a RN that was going to make sure that no one came in that had symptoms occupational health to like for our staff that were becoming infected with COVID. Um, All of the like supply chain issues, like we're running out of masks and we're running out of, you know, everything uh, that we needed to keep people safe. 
um, telehealth. We did not have a robust telehealth program. And so you think that's fine. You can just, you know, get on. Did anyone even know what Zoom was then? What were people using? You know, they could do some kind of telehealth video conferencing. Um, but, you know, not everybody had a laptop at home. Not all of our patients have smartphones. Not all of our patients, many of our patients don't have stable Wi-Fi. And so it was just like a lot of moving pieces. And at the same time, many of our staff really wanted to volunteer at the hospitals. And we're like, you know, primary care had essentially paused outside of like medication support. So it's all urgent care. And, you know, our staff wanted to go support the hospitals. And then this opportunity arose where the city came to us and said, we have patients that are homeless and they have been diagnosed with COVID, but they're stable and we need them to be isolated rather than going back to congregate housing at the shelter and because they didn't want them to infect everyone else. And so they essentially handed over this hotel in Long Island City and we had 24 hours to turn it into an isolation clinic. So how did you even begin to figure that out? Like, what was the creative process of like, oh, my God, we have a hotel and we have to turn it into an isolation clinic? My process in, in problem solving all of the things that come up is always, you know, prioritization. What is the most important thing to come out of this when we're done? You know, pulling together, like getting buy-in from people on a, to build a vision for what you'd like to see happen, right? How we're going to get there. And then it's just like one decision at a time until you build that that larger picture. And, and I think that that strategy, at least in, you know, coming up with a creative way to solve each individual question is always something that at the end, it's like, then you look back a week later and you're like, I don't know how I did that, right? Um, this is so fascinating because, you know, I, I've worked in the past as a theater director and that is actually not that different from what theater directing is, right? <laughs> Even like the thing you're trying to do is not save lives. It might be stage a play or whatever, but there is that still, still that thing of you have a group of people, you have to get them to buy into it. And then you sort of break the show down into its component parts and the questions of those component parts. And you just, you try to go through them as quick, you know, yeah. as in, in sequence until the whole thing comes together. So that's amazing that it's the same in, in, in your line of work. It, yeah, I mean, I, I, that totally makes sense to me. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's never exactly how you thought it was going to be when you started. Mm -hmm. And there are people that love it. And there there are a million, you know, little decisions that you might have done slightly differently. Yeah, What were some of the things that, I mean, mistakes might be the wrong word, but ideas that didn't pan out or ways that you had to course correct or, or, or whatever in the, in the midst of that? So we needed a place where we could like store all our stuff. And the only place they had was a gym. And so we ended up like... You mean like the little fitness center at a hotel that has like the elliptical the fitness, machines? Yeah, and, like there were okay. treadmill. Like yeah. our nursing staff and physicians were getting like dressed to go into the isolation rooms, literally standing on a treadmill. But so like things like, would we have picked the gym again? Maybe not. But it was like the best option that we had at the time. Um, you know, even in the beginning, there was, uh, different guidelines from the CDC versus what was coming out of the administration, state and federal, um, versus the city DOH, you know, because I think, you know, no one really knew 
that much in those early days. And so you kind of had to just use your best judgment and make a call for today. And then as you learn more information tomorrow, you're going to, you know, but building that kind of, I think, preparing people that are used to working in very finite situations with very clear guidance and like tested and true evidence-based practice to like, we're going to wing it day to day. Like building that kind of culture had to happen overnight. And that was also, I think, really one of the bigger challenges. Yeah. How did you set that tone? How did you build that culture of like, this is going to be messy? Part of it is, I think you have to be in there with everyone. You know, if you're going to say, so today we all are going to wear these masks, you have to be there on site wearing those masks and doing exactly what the guidance that you're giving is going to be. And I think I never made a decision where I felt like I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. Because it was also, you know, I want to be safe too, right? And so I think the way in which you build that culture is like, this is what we're doing today and I'm doing it with you. And this is what we'll all do together tomorrow. Uh, And I think that also helped to build, you know, a sense of like, we're all in this together. And we'll get through this together, right? Because I think that was another big part of it is there was no light at the end of the tunnel then. Yeah. How do you, I mean, you're working long hours, you know, uh, the work is chaotic. People are dying. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly emotionally difficult thing to have to go through and you don't even have the comfort of knowing it's going to end at some point. Right. Um, how do you nurture yourself? How do you protect yourself or your team emotionally so that you can keep doing the work and not completely burn out? Yeah, burnout is, it's my biggest, it's the biggest battle of this for me right now. Um, because, you know, of course, there's all the COVID stuff. There's the the racially motivated violence. There are the, you know, the, the protest of last summer and the death of George Floyd and the trial that's happening right now. And, you know, these are things that people are carrying with them when they walk in the door to work, right? And their loved ones, their best friends are facing you know, food insecurity or housing insecurity because they've lost their jobs and they haven't been able to go back to work, right? And so it's like heavy. And we've tried so many different things. In the beginning, we did, we had this like a Zoom channel where we had like guided meditation at noon on Monday and, you know, like uh, yoga on Friday afternoons and things for people to have, you know, kind of like non-transactional experiences with their coworkers. It's like the water cooler stuff that we can't do nowadays, right? Like right. That, It's so lost. And so I think it's really important to think of, you know, creative ways to have people engage, to build trust and camaraderie and and cohesion remotely for a lot of people has been a particular challenge. So we did the Zoom things. We um, are also trying to uh, have... (laughs) We have like a fun committee, which is a group of people that come up with fun workplace events that, that we do, we like karaoke nights, things like that. Um, but I think it's a real long-term issue. I think that for the most part, lots of clinicians are like still running on, the, on adrenaline and, you know, it's going to run out for different people at different times. And I think it's our responsibility as administrators to address that individually. There's like no perfect answer to addressing burnout. People respond to it differently. People need different kinds of support. And I think you've got to really get individualized in how you address it organizationally. 
We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Anthony Fortenberry after this. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. So, hey, listeners, a couple of things real quick. First, if you are enjoying this podcast, and I sincerely hope you are, please take a moment to subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcast so you never miss an episode or even a second of working. And if you happen to be listening on Overcast, please recommend the episode by hitting the star icon. Also, do you have questions about the creative process, big or small? Whether you need to figure out a big pivot at work or want to know how to tackle an ambitious writing project, we would love to help. You can drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us an old fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. We really, really like phone calls. Okay. Let's rejoin Isaac's conversation with Anthony Fortenberry. A lot, not all, but a lot of your work previously and ongoing is uh, with people with HIV AIDS. Did you feel like that prepared you in a particular way for the COVID crisis and for the way you approach it? Were there things from that work that kind of carried over in specific ways? I think there are things from that work that have prepared me to think about how to roll out vaccine distribution in an equitable way. You know, because I think there's a lot of judgment for people that are, you know, questioning whether the vaccine's right for them. I think there's a lot of inequity around access to vaccine distribution. Mm -hmm. People living with HIV and AIDS still continue to face stigma and discrimination and lack of adequate housing to the things they need. Uh, and we're seeing that again. You know, you talk about you know, the vaccine passport and, you know, ways in which we're like, well, you know, you're going to have to show your papers to get into, you know, events. And I think people have really legitimate, valid uh, medical mistrust that we need to, as a healthcare system, address before we can, you know, say, well, if you don't decide if you don't feel like the vaccine's safe, then you can't do the things that everyone else is going to be able to do. You know, I think we have a lot of work to do there around education. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the big challenges uh, for this country and for anywhere that has a somewhat adequate supply of vaccine, right, is uh, vaccine resistance. People who don't want to take the vaccine. Can you talk a bit about your your experience? Because you're, you're dealing with lots of people who mistrust the healthcare uh, uh, industry and may not want to deal with the vaccine. And, you know, I can think of some strategies off the top of my head. You can require people to get it. You can um, throw statistics at them and blah, 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 blah. But I don't know that they would be that successful. So w what have you found works in terms of getting people to agree to literally give it a shot? First of all, I, I would say that, you know, even 
we at Cal and Lord do not have enough vaccine for everyone that would want mm-hmm. it. And so, you know, in the United States, we ration healthcare. And this, you know, COVID has been no exception. And we are certainly rationing vaccine in New York State and access to the vaccine. Um, so pre-COVID, we utilize kind of predictive analytics and a risk algorithm to determine like who is most at risk for poor health outcomes um, based on their medical history. And so it's like a population health initiative. We've used this same initiative now with COVID to really target people that we believe would have the worst health outcome from a COVID infection and have done proactive outreach to them to make sure that they are first in line. And so we are really hoping to target our health education support, like having someone like call them on the phone and you know answer their questions, address any concerns so that they can decide if the vaccine is right for them. And so I think this idea of trying to maintain vaccine equity is going to be an even larger problem for us to solve and vaccine access. Like I will say like the same nursing staff that were working in the hotel last March are the same ones providing vaccines today. And, you know, talk about burnout. Like we have stretched everyone as thin as, as we can. Um, and so, you know, another strategy that we have tried to utilize to both increase like capacity for vaccine distribution, but also, you know, try to, provide some support to new grads is that we partnered with nursing schools so that people that have just graduated from nursing school who are like technically able to give vaccines under the state. I mean, they've been working in the hospital for the past couple of years, um, but haven't yet taken their boards. They're able to vaccinate for COVID, just COVID specifically. And so we have this like great group of amazing new grads that we're utilizing to help with our vaccination process. And we're teaching them how to have conversations with people about the vaccine to help address any concerns to make sure that they feel really comfortable. Um, So I think it's twofold. It's one, building up this really large workforce that is able to provide vaccination and partnering with uh, community-based organizations to, you know, have town halls, send a nurse to a community center where people are getting lunch every day and have them give a presentation do a Q&A. Like, this is where people are already engaging because they trust the people that are there and they trust the people and the advice that are brought in to talk to them. And so I think, you know, those are really important strategies that we need to lean on more. The Javits Center is great. A lot of people will sign up and go to the Javits Center. People are refreshing their, their screens while they're working from home and they're going to get those appointments. But there are more people that are, you know, not able to do that that are really the most at risk. You know, like if you look at a restaurant today, the people sitting at the tables eating dinner are gonna probably get that vaccine more easily than all of the people working in the restaurant, right? And the people working in the restaurant are who we want to get vaccinated. They're the ones that are not working from home, right? And so, you know, I think that there needs to be more outreach. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we're gonna have as we go through the summer. Yeah, you know, one thing you've you've touched on a few times over our, our discussion today is of course healthcare inequity. And you know, one of the things that's been true of the the ongoing HIV AIDS crisis, which is far from over, and of the COVID pandemic is that it highlights so starkly the inequities in our society in terms of who gets the disease, who dies from the disease, who doesn't get the care they need when they have the disease. And the ways that it can destroy their lives, even if they do get those other things and even if they do survive. 
Um, you did not design American capitalism or the American healthcare system. <laughs> you have you had nothing to do with the inputs of this, right? But your whole job is addressing those those outputs, right? In, in making sure that you don't perpetuate those inequities in your own work. I think that it is a particular challenge to hire and build a workforce that really gets that. And that can, you know, that wants to commit their career to mitigating that for for our community and not be in a constant state of anger and frustration that the system exists, right? Like it's this really, you know, balance that you have to strike, I think, Um, you know, acknowledging our really inefficient and dangerous healthcare system and finding ways to work within it to like not make patients always bear the brunt of those frustrations. You know, we have this really mission driven team. We are like, you know, for community health centers, I think people are really drawn to uh, work there because they are drawn to the mission and they are activists at heart. Right. And so we are as much as a healthcare center as a social justice organization because everyone that works there, you know, I think feels that we want to see change happen to how healthcare is provided in America. Um, and so I think what we do is we try to push our legislators to make changes. Um, we are really active in trying to promote policies that we believe better reflect the needs of the patients we're caring for. And our staff are really involved in that. Um, I think as an outlet to, you know, vent frustrations, but also they have a really powerful story to tell because they're the ones that are working within the system, right? Like they know best what is really not working and what needs to change in order to make it work better. What are the lessons that we should take forward as we start returning to normal life. I'm putting that in heavy quotes, you know, as, as <laughs> it's so easy to kind of just say, well, that's over now. I want to forget about that. Right. But what should we carry with us as we move forward? For me, I think one of the biggest lessons learned is, is really thinking outside of the box. So often I think we get in the habit of doing the things that we do because that's the way that we've always done them. And although so many of the changes that have occurred have been disruptive and terrible, a lot of them have been really great. And I think, you know, some of the takeaways for me as we go back into, you know, something that looks a lot more like 2019 than 2020, um, are, are trying to focus on those positive changes and not reverting back to status quo for the sake of reverting back um, because that what was that's what was comfortable or more familiar. I think you know I think about telehealth and the fact that everyone's been able or that many people I shouldn't say everyone many people uh, are able to access the healthcare that they need remotely. Therapy people are I mean. Therapy is something that we had a huge need for pre-COVID that now exponentially there's more demand for. And, you know, in Manhattan, rent is so expensive that it's hard to expand therapy programs to meet the needs of communities. Now so many more people 
actually, I think, are preferring to meet with their therapists remotely in the comfort of their home. And so that is going to allow us to really be able to expand the number of therapists that we have that are able to provide these services for patients. There's like one example of something that I think, you know, really COVID has forced us to think out of the box and do things in really radical new ways that we're finding people really like and that I hope we'll be able to continue into the future. Of course, this goes back to like the advocacy and the regulatory stuff that like we need our lawmakers to make that possible um, because we're still operating under emergency orders um, to be able to do that. And so that's one thing. I, I also think that, you know, we have to focus on, I guess this is kind of related. We have to, you know, really focus on our own self-care. I think, you know, like I said before, so many people are kind of still running on adrenaline and there will come a time where we will need to um, find ways to ensure our staff are healthy um, mentally and physically and emotionally. You know, there's no amount of thank yous or, you know, gifts or anything that will ever truly be enough. There's no, you know, a, you know, all staff meeting that we can do where we will truly be able to share our gratitude, right? But we have to do something because I think, you know, it's important that we acknowledge what happened. And, and I think, again, this kind of goes back to the ways in which we address burnout. Everyone needs a little something different to try to have some some closure, if that's even possible. Well, Anthony Fortenberry, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your process here on Working. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Isaac, that was fantastic. At the very beginning, I thought, I want to be Anthony's friend. And then, like, a minute later, I was like, actually, I also want to be his co-worker. Like, what an insightful guy with, like, a really inspiring approach to problem solving in the workplace, who obviously works at a wonderful organization. Um, perhaps most of all, though, he provided a great reminder that we're all constantly using our creativity, even if we're not, you know, writing a novel. Yeah, you know, I think I've probably said this before, but I feel like most of my creativity goes into things like parenting and figuring out what we're going to eat for dinner and, and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> I, I think 
not being precious about the creative process is actually really important. It's really important to your artistic work, but it's also really important to seeing the non-artistic parts of our lives, Mm -hmm. you know, the way you might a painting that you're going to do or whatever. Anthony clearly does that. And I think his work and community benefit greatly from it. Yeah, no kidding. I loved his breakdown for how to engage your creativity to solve a problem at work. You know, set priorities, get buy-in, take it one step at a time. That works in pretty much every setting, right? <laughs> I know. I just thought, hey, that's directing, you know, when he when he <laughs> laid that out, right? And I think particularly when it's collaborative work, whether that collaboration is happening in a hierarchy or a flat organization or whatever, you know, that kind of step-by-step process is important. And each one of those things is actually really important and really creative. Like, you know, it's not just like, oh, you figure out what your budget is, right? It's like, well, (laughs) budgeting is actually a creative act. Uh, We don't like to think of it that way, but it really is. So, so yeah, yeah, no, I was, I was quite struck by that. Yeah, for sure. And then sometimes like when you have to turn a very imperfect space into, you know, an isolation ward, no big deal, because that's what you've got and it has to happen. You have to wing it. And in those circumstances, you have to be very open about that. And you have to be there with the rest of the team doing it with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something really clarifying, maybe is the right word, about what a producer friend of mine once called crisis mode. And crisis Mm -hmm. mode is you have a hard deadline. You don't have the resources to do the thing you want to do, but you have to do it anyway. And that could be making a book deadline. That could be uh, constructing a set. That could be turning a hotel workout room into a staging area for your field hospital during the worst global pandemic in a century. But it is a really (laughs) clarifying moment. And even though you are improvising, that improvising is built on a foundation of all the preparatory work that that has gone into it, which is everything from actual prep you've done for that moment to like, uh, the rest of your life up to that moment, your education, your work experience. Uh, but I yeah. also want to say, Jim, mm. do mm. you want to know the origin or at least one of the origins of the term winging it? I certainly do. So this is not, I don't think it's a phrase with a definitive origin, but one of the origin stories, which I discovered while researching my book, because it was in a, someone's memoir, is uh, in the 19th century, particularly in America, outside of New York, theater companies were what were called stock companies. So what would happen is a star would tour to your city, and then a company of local actors would be in whatever show that star needed, because they saved on travel and housing costs for the rest of the company in that way. It's sort of like if uh, Andrea Bocelli tours to a town, he hires that town's orchestra, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's like that. So on Friday, you would find out what role you were playing in what play on Monday. And it might not be one that you were ever in before. And so they would learn the play as best as they could, as quickly as possible. And then they would affix their lines to the wings of the set. And they called it winging the parts. So you would run into the wings and just kind of consult your lines, um, when you weren't speaking, just if you needed a quick refresher. Yeah. Or you would sort of make a little cue card, your own cue card. So you just kind of angle your body the right way so that you can uh, see your lines. And that's called winging the parts. One profession specific thing that Anthony brought up that really resonated for me was the question of burnout. I mean, when you're in the middle of something huge, that is absolutely in your professional wheelhouse. You know, it's like, this is your moment. You've trained for this. You've developed strategies about this but it puts an enormous and an even amount of strain on your profession. Like, how do you cope with that and keep going? Because you do have to keep going. 
both during the crisis and afterward. And, you know, I want to acknowledge that I'm not sure there's any kind of comparison that could appropriately be made to what the healthcare professions have gone through in the last year. But do you have any strategies for avoiding burnout? I mean, this is one of the great creative challenges that everyone navigates. And um, I think everyone has a different way they do it. Some people exercise is how they do it. You know, or, or, you know, making sure that they're taking breaks when they can, things like that. Um, for me, one of the wonderful things about art of all kinds is that it's really a gift to the person who's experiencing it. At the most, all you really owe it is some attention. But it's one of the few areas of our lives where we are being purely given to by the work that we're experiencing. And it's also one of the few times in our lives now because of social media where we can like stop performing for other people for a minute and just be like that space that's created, you know? So staring at a painting, taking a walk and listening to an audiobook, watching a movie, uh, reading a physical book, you know, all mm-hmm. of these things are part of my personal recharging process. The big challenge of the pandemic has been not being able to do any of those things in exactly the same way, you know? But uh, in two weeks, I'll be fully vaccinated. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to just like, go to a different museum every other day or something or, you know, just, just really get out there and experience that again. Like I really hunger for it. And I think yeah. I feel a bit of lingering burnout that really hasn't gone away, partly mm. because of just the intensity of the pandemic and the anxiety mm. around it, but yeah. also partly because it's foreclosed my options for the things that I do to avoid, you know, feeling miserable. Yeah. It's yet another routine that has been completely disrupted. Completely obliterated. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lovely, the idea of the different self that we inhabit when we're experiencing art. That's a really lovely idea. I'm going to sit with that for a while. Oh, thank, thank you, you. Isaac. Um, I was also really moved by Anthony's articulation of how much we bring to our work, whatever that may be, from all the other things we're experiencing in the world, you know, which are often heavy things like the burden of racial injustice or other forms of discrimination that there really isn't an easy solution to. And that make it harder for some people to focus on their work. Um, Having that acknowledged in the workplace can make a big difference. Do you have any tips for how people can work with those burdens in their kind of individual creative work? That's a really good question. In theater, I was sort of raised with two schools of thought about how you deal with, let's call it the extra textual heaviness Mm. of your life. The first is the leave it at the door school, which is actually if you've ever done martial arts, which I have as well, you know, there's there's that in sort of infused in it, where in some ways the door of the rehearsal room is a literal threshold. And in crossing that threshold, you leave the self from the rest of your day on the other side, right? Like when I took... Uh, karate, we you bow before entering the room, and part, and you've taken off your shoes already, and there's a ritual thing where you have sort of been purified of the outside world before entering. And I actually think that's useful. I mean, it might sound a little mystical. It's certainly more mystical than I normally am in my day to day life. But being like in this physical space, only these parts of myself are allowed in here, really or I will only focus on these parts of my life in this physical space can be really useful. But if you do that all the time, I mean, you're just looking at being repressed and it's going to drive you nuts and you'll probably start drinking too much and blah, 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 blah. And so the other part of it is uh, the use it 
school, right? Like, oh, I'm going through a difficult time. My character is going through a difficult time. What of these things can I use? And if you do that poorly, it can be really unhealthy, of course. But I do think that having space where you're only like a certain tranche of yourself allows you in other areas to be your whole self and to have that whole experience. I think the other thing that's really important and you mentioned it earlier is to just actually name what's going on and not be afraid of it. Mm. Um, one that happens to me a lot is I'm like, God, why is it so difficult to write this thing that I'm writing right now? And then I'll literally say out loud, cause it'll be like a Eureka style epiphany. Oh, it's because the thing I'm trying to do is hard. Right. <laughs> and just naming that is like a huge relief. Um, because I feel like when we don't name these things, we blame ourselves for them, yeah. right? Um, because we're like, oh, it must be my inadequacy at dealing with X thing. The George Floyd yeah. protests. It must be my inadequacy that I can't like shut that off and just concentrate on my work. I must be lazy or bad at focusing. That's like, but if you actually list all the things that are going on in the world that that might be kind of distracting you or making it difficult to focus, you'll see it's a huge list and you're struggling with that because it's a hard thing and it's not because there's you're weak or whatever. Yeah, no, the world just... Well, it's hard sometimes and, and har harder for some people than others. It's true. Yeah. All right. Well, I just loved uh, hearing from Anthony. And I also love this creative um, approach to talking about creativity and creative processes. Um, so thanks for this episode. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you one more Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. But more important, at least to us, you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks to Anthony Fortenberry for being our guest this week. Our amazing producer continues to be the lovely and talented Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with TV writer Jed Mercurio, talking about his work on shows like Bloodlands and Line of Duty. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.